Hello, and welcome back to Pan Am, a podcast about Paris, the people who've lived here, the events that have taken place, and the traces they've left behind. Now, if I mention a painter and an ear, you'll probably think of Van Gogh, and rightly so. But today, we're going back a little further to a painter who greatly inspired him and the mysterious ear that can be found in his once home, now museum, in the incredibly chic Rue Furstenberg. So come with me as we walk in the footsteps of Eugène Delacroix. Saint-Germain. Eugène Delacroix is one of the greatest painters of the 19th century and the leader of the Romantic movement in France. Now, by Romantic, I do not mean that he painted pictures of lovers. Rather, it is characterised by an emphasis on emotion and drama, often in nature, and they use colour and light to express the heightened sense of inner turmoil of their characters. A painting that really captures this for me is by Caspar David Friedrich, Wanderer Above the Sea Fog. You might be familiar with it. In it, we see a sort of stylish man wearing all black and he stands on a rocky outcrop with his back to us, overlooking a dramatic, swirling, foggy vista. Very dramatic. He's looking outwards over this view, but are we really seeing his inner swirling turmoil reflected back to him? What is he doing there? Has he gone out for a hike in some rather stylish attire, or is he about to end it all? You get the idea. So that's a sort of romantic movement type of painting, and Delacroix fits into that. As to Delacroix, you might be familiar with his most iconic painting, Liberty Leading the People where the allegorical figure of Liberty strides over the barricades and the bodies of fallen men. She's surrounded by all of French society, from the upper class wearing the top hat, to the working man in his apron and even a street urchin. She's holding the tricolore flag as Notre Dame burns behind her. Every time there is a demonstration in France, journalists are keen to capture an image of a young woman holding up a French flag and each time they do this, they're making reference to this image. Um, but of course, he's famous for much more than that. So let's begin with a short history of his life. I wrote that, a short history of his life, before I'd written this. And I did intend this to be quite short, but actually it got a bit longer. So I think this episode is going to be about Delacroix's life and the next one is going to be about his legacy. But let's get into it and see how long it takes. So he was born in the sixth year on the seventh day of Floreal. We are in Floreal at the moment, um, which is also known as the 26th of April 1798. So it was just a few years after the French Revolution and it's when the calendars were all still really complicated and they were making their new revolutionary calendar. So understandably, he grew up in quite turbulent times of both political and social change. And sadly, his father died when he was only seven years old. Or did he? You see, there has been some speculation as to whether his father, Charles, was indeed his biological uh, pair, his biological father. Um, And this is due to a rather unfortunate and very public medical condition that he had. You see, seven months before Eugène's birth, uh, on on September the 13th, Delacroix Père underwent a rather remarkable medical procedure. He had a tumour 
reported to be 32 leaves, so that is 16 kilos or 35 pounds, uh, removed from a rather delicate spot on his anatomy. The doctor who performed it was so pleased with his work that he published the information, sparing no detail, not only of the procedure, but of his patient. And it was quite the operation. It took five separate sessions. Don't forget, this would have been with no anaesthetic. And this led people to conclude that with a testicular tumour of that size... Charles Delacroix, the father, his performance would have been surely rather hindered and indeed probably impossible to have children. And thus his wife, who was already two months pregnant at the time of the operation, operation, must have been, well, the father must have been someone else. But who was he? It was suggested that it was none other than Talleyrand himself, and much was made of a so-called family resemblance between Eugène and Talleyrand, um, and how little Eugène resembled his so-called family. And this is a quote which is quite mean. Quote, physically, Eugène did not look like his brothers and sisters. They were large and bovine, with chubby cheeks and flat noses. He was slight and delicate, with deep-set eyes, a firm chin and an upturned nose. His whole bearing was distant, polite and dignified. There we go. Poor old uh, Eugène's brothers and sisters, bovine. Anyway, who was Talleyrand? If you don't know, uh, Talleyrand was a bit of a, a quite an important figure at the time. In the words of Timothy Wilson Smith, who wrote a biography of Delacroix, he writes, quote, Talleyrand, aristocrat by birth, a bishop by vocation, a womaniser by preference and a diplomat by occupation. So he has his finger in many pies. And his career spans the Revolution, Napoleon and the Restoration, and he always seems to come out on top. He never publicly acknowledges Eugène as his son, though. So this is just people making guesses. As to Talleyrand, personally, my favourite anecdote of him must be the one about cheese. So... During the Congress of Vienna, and the Congress of Vienna was essentially a European peacekeeping organisation trying to settle everything down after Napoleon was deposed, Talleyrand organises a cheese competition and everyone came forward with their different cheeses from all the different countries and they all decided that Brie was the best cheese and made it king of cheeses. I quite like Brie. I don't know why I'd say it's the king of cheeses though, but no one asked me. One wonders had Napoleon been in power would have been the emperor of cheeses. We don't know. Anyway, um, Talleyrand was not the only suspected father, but he was the most popular. Um, But like I said, he never acknowledged Eugene and his son. And um, Eugene knew about this operation. And there seemed to be no doubt in the family that his father was his father. And I mean, not all families look alike. That is true. That said, a 16 kilo tumour. It does make you wonder. Let's continue, though, with the life of Delacroix. Now, he was somewhat of an art rebel, um, certainly when he was younger, and he produced some quite controversial pieces like The Death of Sardanapalus, which is currently in the Louvre. Well, it's actually being cleaned or something because it's been away for about the last 
six months maybe. But I really like that painting and it should be back soon, I hope. Um, it shows the the king, Sardanapalus, sort of lying on his bed while in the distance his city burns and everything that he holds dear, money and women and horses all being killed around him. It's fabulous. You need to, to check it out. Um, and it's inspired by a poem by Byron, because at the time that Delacroix was coming up in the art world, the form of painting that was really important and everyone was interested in was being led by Jacques-Louis David and was very much that neoclassical style of work, you know, looking back to Greece and Rome and arches and togas and, you know, quite rigid. Delacroix he looked instead to Byron and Shakespeare and English artists and was creating these much more dramatic and theatrical works. Um, and so he has works which, like I said, were inspired by Byron's poems and also by Shakespeare plays. And so it's, you know, a lot more emotion. He also liked to travel to be inspired and to meet other artists. So he went to England, um, which he liked a lot, although he did describe the sun as being, quote, permanently in eclipse and the women as being badly dressed, which is uh, rude. He found a little bit more sun in Morocco and he produced some of his favourite works there and was really inspired by the colours, customs and architecture that he found in the country. He was a prolific artist and very versatile. He painted on different subjects and on different supports. So he, he painted about history, literature, religion, mythology, nature, and he painted large-scale paintings, murals for public buildings and churches. You know, he, he could do it all. He was really also very well educated. He had a real understanding of uh, composition, of symbolism, and a great knowledge of literature and myth. So this all helped inform his art. But what makes Delacroix's painting so unique and influential is mainly his use of colour. He was a genius at creating rich and harmonious colour schemes that convey different moods and atmospheres. He was really good at contrasting light effects to create drama and intensity. And he wasn't afraid to use bright colours and bold colours, um, which were quite shocking to his contemporaries. Another important aspect of Delacroix's work uh, is his brushstrokes. And this is really important. He was one of the first artists to use loose and spontaneous strokes um, at least in paintings that he deemed finished and presentable to the salons. It gives his paintings a sense of movement and vitality. And he also uses quite thick layers of paint that create texture and depth. If you look at the accepted style at the time, it was much more smooth, that kind of illusion of a perfect painting with no brushstrokes, no visible brushstrokes at all. And you can see that in the work of Ingres or Delaroche, for example. If you go to the Louvre and you get close to Liberty Guiding the People or any of Delacroix's paintings, you'll see the brushstrokes. Go a couple of paintings along and you'll see that lovely painting by Delaroche, the two princes in the tower, and, you know, it's it's completely different. There's a completely different finish to it. So, you know, this is quite radical. Delacroix said he was not interested in realism, but rather capturing the essence and spirit of his subject. And this is quite ironic because he was a great inspiration to the Impressionists, the painters of modern life, of the everyday, of the real. They looked at Delacroix's brushstrokes, at his use of colour, at his paint. All of these things really inform their work. You know, if you look at Van Gogh, if you look at Monet... You'll see that very clearly. You'll see that how they must have looked at Delacroix and found him really inspiring. 
For his part, Delacroix was not really modern at all. He didn't like modern technology, like photography, which the Impressionists loved, or painting the modern world. For him, it was the eternal rather than the day-to-day that inspired him. But despite this, you can see the crossover. What I find fascinating about Paris at this time is just how small it was. I mean, maybe it still is today, but reading about Delacroix, about his life, he really seemed to know everyone who was anyone, especially in the artistic milieu. You know, he was good friends with Chopin and George Sand. He knew Victor Hugo and Alexander Dumas. He knew Balzac and Baudelaire. Really, anyone who was anyone at that time, he seems to have known them maybe casually, but for some some of them, he knew them really, really well. And he would have known, of course, all the important artists at the time, including his nemesis, Jean-Auguste Dominique Ingres. Now, I'm not really a fan of Ingres. Uh, I don't know an awful lot about him, so maybe he is for another episode and I'll have to delve into his life. But but what I find troubling about his work is the way that he deforms women's bodies. He has a very famous painting in the Louvre called Le Grande Odelisque. And if you look at it, first of all, it feels fine. But then when you look at detail, you notice it's a painting of a woman sort of lying in a harem, lying on some cushions. And there's these lovely like curtains on either side of her. And I think she's holding a peacock feather or something. And she's sort of got her back to us and she's looking over her shoulder. But if you look closely, you can see that she's got too many vertebrae. Her back is too long. And then you look at her leg particularly and you see that it's not only too long, but it doesn't attach to her body. There's no way it could attach to her body. And, you know, if you look at the quality of her skin, especially her feet, you know, she's never walked on the floor. She's sort of I don't know, there's something troubling about her. On the other side of that same wall is another painting by Ang. This is a painting of Angelique being saved by a uh, hero. So we have a naked Angelique chained up and a sea monster is about to get her, which is a very common image in uh, all it's in all sorts of myths. Um, and so our hero is on the way, you know, killing the sea monster, but really it seems completely pointless because Angelique is chained up and her arms look like they're made of rubber and her neck looks like it's completely broken. So, you know, very curious indeed. And just to finish my my, my diatribe about Ang, in the same room as Liberty guiding the people, there is this great painting of Joan of Arc. And she's there in her armour, you know, Joan of Arc. But her waist is so snatched. I mean, it's so teeny tiny that the only miracle that could have possibly happened to her is that she could breathe. And I find this troubling. Why do you do this, Ang? Anyway, one day I'll find out more about him and see if he's a terrible person. But for the moment, in my research into Delacroix, he doesn't come off as a great person because he was quite um, definite about what was good and what was bad and how you should paint and how you shouldn't paint. And this comes into play in a really important way for Delacroix because if you wanted to get ahead, of course, as an artist, you could have commissions, which Delacroix did, and he was recognised by the state. But if you really wanted to teach and be influential, then you needed to be elected to sit on the board of the Institute. And this was one of the most prominent and prestigious things an artist could do. And so the Institute, we talked about it already, this is where the immortals are. Um, 
And there is the Institut Française, which is where the dictionary gets written. But there are five in total. And so this would have been for the Institut of the Beaux-Arts. Now, Ang had his place and Delacroix did not, but he wanted a seat at the table. And Ang made sure that this didn't happen. He did everything in his power to exclude Delacroix from getting elected, which he didn't, at least for a very, very, very long time. He does in the end, but not until he's very, very old. But ironically, if you're not part of the establishment, then you're on the outside and that just makes you cooler. Indeed, much cooler than stick in the muds who only want people to paint like them. I'm very much hashtag Team Delacroix. Um, So Ang was trying to control the academy, who was elected, but also how people were painting. And it resulted in a rather dull environment, I've read. Stendhal wrote about the 1839 exhibition, quote, On the whole, these painters seem to me like good technicians, but lacking intellect and with even less feeling. I naturally do not include Delacroix, three of whose paintings have been turned down by those brutes at the Institute. Don't feel too sad for Delacroix, though. Although the Institute snubbed him, the people, the state and the artistic establishment embraced him. Delacroix, like I said, ultimately did win a place, but by that time he was quite old and frail. He died in 1863 at the age of 65, although I think he was quite an old 65. He was a sort of uh, quite sick towards the end of his life. And although he had lots of friends in Paris, he ultimately died a bachelor. He'd had liaisons in his youth, often with his models, um, but sadly he didn't find love. He was married to his work, it seems. At the end of his life, he lived with and was cared for by a rather stern woman called Jenny. Now, some have thought she might have been a lover. Some have said she was possibly a mother substitute, as his mother also died when he was very young. But she was essentially a housekeeper and made sure that he ate and got rest. And she helped keep the place in order and prepared his paints. And so she was a really important person there for him at the end of his life. So he wasn't married, but he wasn't alone. He's buried in Pelleshe Cemetery with many other famous artists, including his good friend Jericho. Jericho's most known for his great work, The Raft of the Medusa, which is in the Louvre, just a couple of paintings down from Liberty Guiding the People. And fun fact about The Raft of the Medusa, Delacroix was actually a model for one of the people on the raft, although we don't see his face, just his body. Anyway, so Jericho is also buried at Père Lachaise, as is his nemesis frenemy Ang. Um, they're not buried far from each other. And his house, Delacroix's house and studio, are now a museum dedicated to his life and work. And it's a really nice place to visit. More perhaps to see the house and the atelier and the garden. But if you are interested in the work of Delacroix, then it is really great to see. There is a really nice audio guide in French. I don't know if it's in English, where Jenny takes you around and points things out of interest. And you can see a portrait of Jenny and even her daughter that Delacroix made in the house. The museum can be found in the picturesque Rue de Fostenberg in the 6th arrondissement. And there was a good reason that Delacroix chose to live here, as it was just up the road from the place of his last great project, the mural mural of the Church of the Saint-Salpice. Because while you do get to see his great works in the Louvre, There are some other works of his that you can just see in Paris for free. There are, in fact, three churches that display his work. Like I said, this was 
going to be quite a short biography and then we were going to dive into the churches and go on a little walking tour and see them. But it ended up being a bit longer. So I think let's call it a day there for Delacroix. And next time we'll do a little walking tour around Paris into the three churches and discover his works. Oh, and if you're interested in the ear, well, in that case, you need to go into the garden, deep into the garden, and look all around the wall. And there you will find the ear. Why it's there and how it got there, nobody knows. Does it mean anything? Is it a foreshadowing of the Vincent ear? Is this Vincent's ear sculpted into the wall? Who knows? It's a mystery. Anyway, go to the Delacroix Museum. You get in free. If you've been to the Louvre, you can use your Louvre ticket and go there. So I would say definitely go along. And when I went along just the other day, imagine... I looked at my ticket and on one side was the entrance to the museum and on the other side was the painting by Ingres, the Grand Odelisque. I can't believe it. The shade, the shade of it. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed today's episode. Um, If you've got any questions or comments, just let me know and I'll try and put up some pictures on Instagram. Take care of yourselves. Bye bye.